This episode contains discussion of sensitive topics. Please check the description for details and content warnings. Thank you for listening and take care. listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Skylit, the Skylight Books podcast. I'm your host, Steph Tharp. Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing and curbside pickup, and you can always shop at our store online at skylightbooks.com. Just check out our website to stay up to date with our current in-store shopping policies. Today, we're welcoming Jonathan Alexander to discuss his two new books, Bullied, The Story of an Abuse, and Stroke Book, The Diary of a Blind Spot. Jonathan is in conversation today with Julieta Singh, author of The Breaks. Jonathan Alexander is a writer living in Southern California, where he's Chancellor's Professor of English at the University of California, Irvine. He's the author, co-author, or editor of 21 books. His cultural journalism has been widely published, especially in the Los Angeles Review of Books, for which he is the young adult editor, where founding editor Tom Lutz calls him one of our finest essayists. He lives with his husband and cat, and when not writing, dabbles in watercolors and plays piano in a music ensemble with friends. For more about Jonathan Alexander and his books, please visit thecreeptrilogy.com and the blank page, the dash blank dash page.com. Julieta Singh is a nonfiction writer and academic who works at the intersections of post-colonial studies, the ecological humanities, and queer theory. She's the author of three books, her recently released The Breaks, published by Coffeehouse Press, No Archive Will Restore You, and Unthinking Mastery. Her work has been featured in venues such as the Paris Review, the Los Angeles Review of Books, American Poetry Review, Women in Performance, and Lambda Literary. She currently lives and works in Richmond, Virginia. Welcome, Jonathan and Julieta. I'm so happy to have you. Thanks. Oh, thank you. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So jo- nice to be here. Yeah. Jonathan, did you want to start us off with a reading? Sure. Absolutely. Thank you for asking. I'm going to read, I think, a little bit from Bullied, the story of an abuse. Uh, This comes near the beginning of the book. Here's a reality. I'm sitting with my mother and father just days before I'm to be married. I'm 25. I have finished work on my PhD in comparative literature, and part of me is looking forward to starting my life, starting a life, a kind of life that I think I should have, that I think I should want. I'm sitting with my mother and father talking about the upcoming ceremony, and I start crying, then sobbing. I'm sobbing. They want to know what's wrong. It isn't a question anymore, but a statement. They're not asking what's wrong. They are saying something is wrong. And I can identify what actually is wrong. But my father beats me to the punch. My father, who otherwise took next to no interest in me, the man who likely didn't even want me to be born, 
or who actually suspected that I might not be his own child because he didn't want me that much, he thinks he knows what's wrong. I think I know what it is, he says. You're a homosexual. I'm writing this sitting in a coffee shop, tapping away on my laptop, writing, writing, and looking up to check out the cute barista, the boy who doesn't mind flirting a little bit, the college kid at the school down the road today wearing a cute little densely patterned socks beneath out, or that are sneaking out beneath the rolled ankle cuffs of his jeans. I've never seen him without his jaunty baseball cap. I wonder what his hair is like, his black hair. My uncle had black hair. I return to my father, the man who didn't want me, offering me one of the truths of my life. You are a homosexual. Well, you're close, I said. I think I was molested by Uncle Glenn. And it's given me these thoughts, these feelings. I don't know what to do. That, that was as close as I could get to the truth at the time. My parents don't seem that surprised. I was always a weird child, introverted, bookish, bullied, a target called fag, faggot, gay, queer, homo, constantly, incessantly. How can so many people be wrong? I was otherwise good, a churchgoer, a good boy, a good boy, quiet, shy, bookish, more comfortable with my books, my classical music than other people, other boys, other men my own age. I desperately did not want to be gay. That became the organizing truth of my 20s in South Louisiana in the early 90s. How do you deal with such a truth at such a time in such a place? Now you find a backstory. In my case, I knew the backstory. I was convinced of it. I was molested by my uncle as a child, the only uncle I really knew, my mother's brother who had moved to New Orleans with her when they were just children. He was gay, he had a partner. We grew up knowing him and Michael before he died of cancer when I was just a kid, 12 or so, as I was entering puberty myself, just on the verge of having my first thoughts, my first sexual thoughts, bad thoughts about other boys. Right when the bullying, became intense, severe, terrifying, terror. Bullying is terror. Some kids protect themselves from their own thoughts by torturing others. Some other kids are the terrorized, the tortured. So sitting with my mother and the father who didn't want me, I talk about a night I barely remember. So many years ago, a night when Uncle Glenn had taken me to see Fantasia. He loved classical music. He was a big man, burly, strong. He took me to this film. I was maybe six or seven, young, maybe younger. My mother and my father start talking about how I had called them that night, wanting to be picked up. Pick me up, please, that I wanted to go home. But they didn't come get me. They were having a night out, whatever, their own private time. I don't remember any of that, but I remember the film, bits and pieces of the film, something blue, but immediately in that moment, sitting with my parents, sobbing, I'm wondering, why didn't you get me? Why didn't you get me? He was molesting me. I was being molested. I don't know what my parents were thinking, except likely what I was thinking, that this explains so much. This explains everything. This is why I'm having the feelings about other boys that I've had. This is what people can read in my presence so clearly. This is why I am called out as a fag, faggot, gay, queer, homo. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. We are confident, even relieved. 
My sobbing calms us all. I can go through with this. I can go through with getting married. It's all going to be okay. I was confident I had been molested. I don't remember being molested. All right, we'll stop there. <laughs> Jonathan, it's always so amazing to hear you read. I've read so much of your work and it rings a different note for me every time I hear you actually reading it yourself. So thanks for sharing that. Well, um, we have two memoirs to talk about today, <laughs> not just one, but two. Um, and you're on a kind of memoir jag. Memoir is your mode. And I wondered if we could just start with that basic question of why memoir, why it's so vital to and for you as a writer and thinker. Thank you, Julia. It's an amazing question. And I know it's one that, that you grapple with as well in your, in your own writing. And I, and I want to hear you respond to this question just as much as I want to hear what's going to come out of my mouth next. But as I was just reading this passage, one of the things that occurred to me is I am drawn to memoir memoir right now, especially at this point in my life and well into my 50s on the other side of a big health crisis where I'm, I'm grappling with what does it mean to have lived this long? What does it mean to be conscious of my own mortality? I'm sort of overwhelmed with the sense that the past is not a stable thing. <laughs> and we write memoirs because the past keeps changing. And, and I know that might sound strange, but, but the past does change. What parts of the past we allow to be present with us, how much of the past we want with us, the parts of the past that are repressed and that that keep demanding that we pay attention to them. I think this is not just something that I as an individual am going through. I think this is something our entire culture is going mm -hmm. through right now. Mm -hmm. Like what is happening with the past? How do we recognize and if not reconcile, at least grapple with what the past keeps doing to us mm -hmm. and how our understanding of it keeps changing. Mm -hmm. So I think memoir right now for me, and I think for many people is important because because the past is not decided and we live in a moment where personally and also culturally and politically, we have to grapple with the past, so. I had an order of questions that I was gonna ask you, but that very beautiful and evocative response is making me jump, jump the queue here. <laughs> um, I wanna talk for a minute about Bullied, which you just read from the story of an abuse. Um, and I, I wanna read a quick a quick quote and ask you to reflect on it because I think it says so much about what you've just said about history and the past is something that's ever changing. You write, my question in this book, the one I'm writing is simple. What happens if the totalizing event, the traumatic occurrence is one you think might have happened, but maybe didn't? This question has structured my life. I experienced a trauma I believed for a long time it was childhood sexual abuse. It may not have occurred, but I still am left with the experience of having been abused. I believe I was abused. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely, and, it, and it, I think it helps um, clarify what's going on in the passage I read too. Uh, you know, as I describe in that passage, I growing up in the in the deep south and the sort of outskirts of New Orleans at a, at a time when. Uh, so very different from our own time in so many ways. It's just not possible for me to imagine being being gay, grow, uh, becoming a gay man. 
and I desperately didn't want to be gay. And so I had at a, a, a sort of had a kind of ready-made possibility that the one gay person I did know, my uncle, um, may have molested me. Um, did that happen? Probably not. And as I've come to that awareness that he probably did not molest me, I've had to think, well, where, where do I still have this deep, deep sense of having been traumatized, terrorized, of having been abused? Where does that sense come from? And the answer is all around me, you know, it's all around me in the institutions and the governments and the, you know, the threat of AIDS, just in the government in, in sort of lack of government responsiveness to AIDS. It's just all of the different religious discourses, political discourses, the taunts and the bullying from other children, the, just all of it con conspired, I think, in a way to create an environment that for many people, for many young people like me, really was a, a time of terror, you know, a, a time and a place of, of, of terror. And so what I've struggled with is to try to figure out how do I reconcile that past with my current being, mm -hmm. what I know about myself now, mm -hmm. um, when what I imagine about the past is itself changing and how, mm -hmm. how the story I tell about how I've gotten to where I am right now has had to undergo some revision. It's such a humbling and extraordinary gesture to, to look back at the story or one of the stories that structures your life and gives you a narrative of, of self-becoming or, or justifies or offers a kind of excuse for that becoming and then to have to later in life undo that whole narrative. And I'm curious if you think about memoir then as a kind of rewriting of that whole script, because really what you're doing is like telling stories that then give us other avenues or other ways of thinking against that, that singular and potentially false narrative. All the time. I, I think that maybe one for me, one of the most powerful dimensions of memoir as a, as not just a practice of writing, but really a practice of living in some mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. we, we are so much the, the, the discourses, the rhetorics, the, the, the narratives that are given to us. I mean, none of us are born creating a language. We're always born into someone else's language, someone else's words, someone else's way of being in the world um, and understanding what is valuable. And we absorb that inevitably. Mm -hmm. We are always mm -hmm. speaking someone else's language. Um, mm -hmm. It seems to me memoir is an opportunity to on one hand, interrogate that language. Like, does this really fit what it is that I'm experiencing? Is this, is this robust enough to capture the complexity of my experience? And then there are other times when we need to just actively work against, we need to rewrite, we need to, we need to mix and match, we need to set fire to those narratives that we've been given. Yeah. You know, the, the, the title of your, of your first work of memoir, No Archive Will, will Restore You, right? It just, it, what archives are we given? Mm -hmm. And what archives do we need to reconstruct? Yeah. What archives do we need to throw out? What archives do we need to reassemble? And that's very much what I've been doing in, yeah. this, in this book. Yeah. There's a really amazing moment in Bullied that I've written to you about um, that's, that, that is maybe a minor moment in the book, but to me was very explosive. And it's a moment when you're taking on the intersection of, of race and homophobia and you're commenting on the, the case of Jesse Smollett 
and you kind of go through the account of what happened, what we thought, what was discovered, what was revealed, and you write in, in closing on this moment of reflection, you write, I don't condone it, but I get it. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it was so interesting to, to oh, I just, I'm, uh, I'm flashing back to, to, to that time in which I was first drafting uh, uh, that passage. It was also right in the midst of the, the Me Too moment when we're hearing so many different stories about young women having been, having been abused. Um, and then we get this, this incident from, from Jesse Smollett. And of course the initial outrage of like, how could this, how could this man you know, not only be the victim of, of racism and homophobia, but just, just you know, how, how could this, how could this happen? You know, it just seemed to, to characterize so much of what was wrong <laughs> with the world uh, in 2019. And, um, and then of course it's revealed that he, he sort of engineered this, uh, concocted this and and it felt Julieta this is going to be a strange thing to say but it, it felt weirdly like a, a gift you know yeah. like, here's this person who has who who has clearly suffered you know I mean he obviously has been the victim of racism and homophobia it's like but how do you how do you make that real to people because he was also a rather successful actor at the mm -hmm. time too and so I felt you know here I am a, a professor at a prestigious institution and I've worked on many books and I've taught many students and all by all outward appearances, my life seems wonderful as, as it is in many ways. It's, I, I have a great life and yet I carry with me the, the, the legacies of, of past trauma and of abuse. And they always constantly shape my interaction with the world and how I understand the world. How do you make that manifest to somebody? You know, how do you make it manifest to, to people who tell you, oh, you have nothing to complain about. Mm -hmm. um, and, that, and that's another dimension of this book too, is to try to give people the sense of what it's like to live with severe anxiety. Mm -hmm. So while I can't condone at all, you know, what Justice Mullet did, I, I, I found myself sort of in my own way, in the context of my own life, understanding a little bit, well, why would someone concoct a story when in fact it's very likely I concocted a story or, or was complicit in furthering a very easy to believe story about my queerness, one that other people could believe and one that would exonerate me from any complicity uh, in, in my own desires. So, mm -hmm. so is that identification with, with Jesse? Not, not, not entirely, but, but it is an attempt to say, we need to understand why people, I mean, to me, that was the question, why, why do that? And I think it's like, I kind of get why one would do that, why one would feel that what they've experienced has not been made manifest enough for other mm -hmm. people to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. That's a beautiful, beautiful answer. Um, I know that you're writing a, a third um, book in your trilogy. So we have Creep <laughs> and Bullied. And now, um, what's the, do you already have a title for the third? Yes, it's called Dear Queer Self. Dear Queer Self, and it's a, yes. it's a letter to younger, to a younger you. And when I, when I saw that, that this was the third in, in the trilogy, I was thinking, it made me think immediately about how I, it feels like you're often 
not so much writing to yourself, but writing to younger queer folks, and maybe in particular younger queer men who you imagine won't understand the conditions of your life in the South in another time. And so it, it feels like across your work, you're often um, engaging with a kind of imagined audience that is another generation of you. Do you feel that? Does that resonate for you in terms of like the, the grappling with where you've been in conversation with a with a, a, a current world that doesn't feel to like it, it resonates so much? A absolutely. I think that's that that seems exactly right to me. Um, and maybe not necessarily something that I knew I was doing consciously until I'm, you know how this is, Julieta. It's like you're I do. for a while and then you figure it out. It's like, oh, totally. I think that's what I'm doing now. Yeah. And Usually somebody else tells me what I'm Somebody doing. else can tell you. <laughs> that's why I have friends like you, you know. Exactly. And, and I, I hope to return the favor in, in my own time and way. But it's but yes, I I think also not just for me, worrying that the the profundity of a set of experiences will be lost worrying maybe that they'll come back <laughs> that those conditions will come back mm -hmm. but also concerned that those conditions exist spatially and temporally in uneven ways there are kids right now growing up yeah. who are encountering similar things to what i did in the late in the 80s and in the early 90s in, in louisiana uh, I have unfortunately spent part of the pandemic listening to some of these young people uh, talk to me about how they've had to go home during the, the lockdown to parents who are not that interested in hearing about their lives, who don't appreciate them. And, and they may not be experiencing abuse, overt abuse, but they're, they're suffering. Uh, and that's here in, in Southern California. I can only imagine what it's like in other, other parts of the country, other parts of the world. So we're all in kind of different spatiotemporal places that and, and times that, that that need to be need to be addressed. But yeah, I am kind of wondering about what what kinds of histories that get lost, and I don't want this history to get lost in part because it's always with me. It always stays with me, and that's another part of the writing as well, which is to demonstrate. The, the ongoing pressure of the past in our lives. Um, I was just watching with uh, with my husband, Mac, uh, Russell T. Davies, It's a Sin, if you've seen this HBO series, uh, uh, or at least it's on, it's on HBO. I haven't seen it, but it, the, the title itself feels descriptive. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, and it's about um, uh, the... Um, the beginning of the AIDS era in, in London. And it's a lot of real interest in that time. And I think in part because it's all too easy to forget what those times were like. And there is, there's a real political importance to not forgetting. Um, there's also political importance to not being overwhelmed yeah. uh, by the traumas of those times. Yeah. But we shouldn't forget them either. And so mm -hmm. I, I think of my work as kind of aligned with that need both to remember because it's important to remember important politically to remember that this is a time that has occurred this time could occur again or something similar to it could come again mm -hmm. also as we were saying before just to to reflect on the pressure of the past and how it continues to shape to this day even those of us who live in very different circumstances than perhaps we once did can can we talk about another kind of trauma by shifting to stroke book? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So um, your, your second memoir of this season is Stroke Book, The Diary of a Blind Spot. And I was really struck in that book, which tells the story of a minor stroke that you suffered that, that um, impacted your vision about this kind of shift from uh, a memoir style that's really concerned with and focused on the threat from the outside to the body to a shift to a kind of writing that's thinking about the body as producing its own kind of threat. Can you reflect on that a little bit? Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. They're very related stories in, in a lot of ways. I, you know, Struckbook also deals with the, 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 the ongoing legacies, in this case, the somatic legacies, right? The embodied legacy of having grown up uh, in a very homophobic time and place and how that, that shapes, even, even not fully consciously, right? Or, or not at a level at which I'm always aware, habits, uh, ways of being in the world. And that, that part of, for me, enacting a, a queer life has been trying to work against some of those habits, work against those patterns of thought, work against that, that uh, invocation of shame, work against self-hatred, uh, and only partially succeeding. <laughs> there is a, an, a bodily residue, which I describe as that, that little bit of, that little globule of cholesterol that wants to come loose and kill me. Uh, and this time it just sent, its, sent a warning, as it were, um, uh, uh, a reminder that it's, well, not even a reminder, it just announced I am here. You know, this is, this is something you need to contend with. Um, and to try to connect those dots, to try to, to try to connect them. I wanted to do a book that was more than just about, uh, you know, uh, what Lauren Blatt calls slow death, right? You know, the, 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 the consumption of, of bad foods and things of that nature that, that do slowly kill us in the long mm -hmm. term, but, but wanted to connect it more specifically to experiences of, of, of homophobia that, that do stick with us uh, mm -hmm. no matter no matter how our lives change, uh, no matter what improvements we make in our lives, that, that there are legacies of these things. And so for me, just as we were talking about with bully, again, the, the pressure of the past uh, is, is there for me. I've been thinking for a few days while, while steeped in your work about the question of anxiety, because so much of, of your writing is asking us to think about um, across, I mean, across all your work, but definitely in Bullied and, and Stroke Book, um, the, the production of anxiety and how anxiety is produced and distributed sometimes through our own experiences of our own bodies and sometimes through the experience of other bodies pitched against ours. And there's a moment in Stroke Book where you describe anxiety as a friend and I've been thinking for a couple of days about anxiety as a kind of orientation and one that we're most often taught to disavow or to, to medicate out. And I wondered about how we might conceive of anxiety as a friend. You know, I, I, I think the phrase I might use at one point is my most constant companion, you know, and, and there's something kind of lovely about. Like a real good dog. Yeah, yeah. It's like, good boy, good boy. There, there you are. And, and can anxiety be that? Um, you know, part of that is just querying anxiety, right? It's like, I, I'm going to take this thing that really makes my life miserable 
and try to reappreciate it. It's like, does this bring me to anything good? You know, I remember the, the psychoanalyst uh, Karen Hornig talks about um, defense mechanisms that turn into neuroses. And she says that at the heart of every neurosis really is something good. Your, your, your mind is trying to do something to protect you. It's, it's defensive in some ways. It just becomes path, pathological. And so for me, anxiety, you know, kind of that obsessive compulsive neurotic anxiety is, is, is pathological, but, but it, is, it, it was based in something good. It was based in something trying to protect me, trying to keep me from, from harm in some ways. Um, and so I've been trying to understand it more as you know, a pal, <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe a, you know, a, a toxic friend, but, but, but a, a friend none, nonetheless. And, and that actually kind of reminds me, I'm, I'm so glad we're laughing because the way we've been talking about these books make them sound like they're real downers. No, no, they're not downers. I, I think you're Julie. reading, yeah, you're reading really clarifies that. <laughs> I was gonna say, Juliana, you gotta help, you gotta back me up on this. I think they're actually kind of funny books. They're totally, they're, they're definitely, they're, they're very fun. They're very fun yeah. to read, for and sure. I, yeah, and, and I, I always thought, I, I'm not a good writer, but I'm a good reader. I'll, and I wish I could just read these things to people because then I think you get a sense of the, the, no, I think I think it's there in the writing okay. too, Jonathan, for sure, for sure. Um, and I think any kind of formulation of anxiety as a friend is is a really, really like hilarious and interesting one. But also um, probably the reason why you're producing two two books <laughs> right now, right? Well, you know, anxiety it, also gives in some way. It does. It does. It it it, it propels you. Uh, although you know, lest I seem too precocious, I. I I have been very fortunate that, that this is just a moment when some publications are really coming through. But you you, you know the the timeline, you know the chronology of publication. You know. Yeah, it seems like you're hyper productive, but it's just because one took like two I'm years in the chain. Years. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I'm working for many years on this kind of stuff. For sure. And for things sure. are just just really now hitting at a, at a lovely moment. I'm I feel very fortunate. So. Yeah. Um, I have I have a question for you that I think is a very difficult one, um, and it's about the formulation that you um, dwell on in Stroke Book of your illness, your injury, um, turning you into an animal. You write a, you write about becoming animal, and I'm curious about the relation, how you think the relation between animality and illness. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, it's so interesting that that has been a part of the book that, that other people have brought to me. Uh, I wasn't, I think, fully aware of what I was doing until other people pointed this out. And I'm like, oh, let me, let me spend some time with that. And, um, the the animal for me um oh, I, I, there are moments and you, you got a sense of this too when i read from from bullied where i i do try to do i try to remind myself or am i reminded by my body that it still has desires right that it's still doing things jonathan i feel like you have a lot of desires <laughs> Your desires are always really, really out there in your work. They're all over the place. Well, we don't have we don't have enough time to to really talk about that. But, but, but yeah, yeah. And what's been surprising for me 
Juliana is recognizing that is a, is is discovering that relatively late in my life, kind of coming to this realization that that the the animal within st is still stirs, no matter how pacified he, no matter how pacified I've tried to to make that animal, uh, that that urges and desires, you know, maybe 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 less virile at, at my advanced age, but nonetheless still there. And that's been important to experience. And it's been something which I, I think often becomes a sort of counterpoint in many of uh, the stories that I that I tell. Oh, here's something horrible. Oh, and wow, that kid's got a really cute butt. You know, and so those things go back and forth for me about uh, my my experience of life. And, and, and maybe it creates a kind of bifurcation. But for me, that's, that's, that's a queer joy is to experience that bifurcation. Yeah, it's that really, so. totally. Uh, I also have never reveled so much in descriptions of young boys, nice butts before. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks for thanks for bringing me along on that journey. Um, I wanna ask, uh, I wanna read one more quote to, to finish us off and ask you to, to talk about it. Um, I love this quote so much. You say, everything I write here is almost cliche, I think, except when it becomes granular when you're living it yourself. None of it is cliche for me, the sacred smallness of things. Well, thank you for reading that. I, um, I think that gets exactly what I was trying to say earlier, which is that our, our, we are given cliches, right? Uh, everything around us you know, can, can possibly be reduced to a cliche, to a tagline, to a soundbite, et cetera. And I feel like my writing is always, if there's something queer, fundamentally queer about my writing, it's always pushing against those cliches, those taglines, those sound bites, and trying to understand where where do we feel these things in our in our guts, in our bodies, in our in our in our genitals, where do we feel them? And what does that feeling actually mean for us? And how do we use that that feeling to understand our lives as more than the cliche? that other people want to make them. Um, so thank you. Thank you for that. Thanks so much, Jonathan. What a pleasure, as always, to be in conversation with you. I always jump at the opportunity. Oh, Juliana, and, and, and likewise. And I just want to tell the listeners that uh, instead of listening to this podcast, you just need to go out and buy a copy of The Breaks, Juliana's <laughs> new book, which is freaking extraordinary and revolutionizing the epistolary tradition so i'll take i'll take those props take it, take it. <laughs> thanks john thank you well thank you both for being with us really appreciate you sharing your work jonathan and um both of you just sharing your sensitivity and and your insightfulness with us today um once again today's guests were jonathan alexander and julietta singh discussing bullied the story of an abuse and stroke book you can order your copy of these books at skylightbooks.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks to you both. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com, and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.